Do you know how um, kids say the darndest things? I was thinking about that this week. Um, I've got a daughter in first grade, and um, she comes home and tells me the darndest things. One of the, the things that has been coming up in our house has been um, something that I remember as a kid being asked in an inappropriate amount of times this question by other kids. Looking back now as an adult, I go, man, nobody really asks that question. That's really inappropriate. But back in first grade, when you were like, you know, five or six years old, um, everything was fair game. You had no filter. I remember sitting around the table in class, cutting up craft or whatever, and we talked politics freely. Back then, it was like, uh, you know, Dan Quayle and Al Gore and all those guys, Bill Clinton. Um, but but uh, we, we would say, oh, my parents are Democrats, your parents are Republicans. And um, if that wasn't controversial enough, kids would talk about religion. And the next question was, well, what religion are you? This is uh, how maybe Thanksgiving went for you, and it was awkward, right? What religion are you? Uh, well, we're Christian. We're Catholic. What's the difference? We don't know. But there was this question, this question all the time. It came up. I don't know why it came up. I never knew how to answer it. One, you know, overly zealous kid would look at another and say, hey, are your parents rich? And I've been racing back through my memory this past week thinking about this, and I can't remember a single time when I ever had a friend of mine say no. He's always like, yeah, man, we're rich. And here's how you proved it back in the day. You proved that your parents were rich based upon what gaming council you had. So, hey, are your parents rich? Yeah, man, we just got Nintendo with Duck Hunt. So cool. And then like the truly rich kid would be like, oh, that's cool. I just got Super Nintendo. Depending on like what stage of life you were in, it kind of determined how you measured your riches. And so as you grow up, you kind of stopped asking the question, but started implying the answer. You'd look around and say, man, I thought we were rich. My dad just got me some sweet rollerblades, but that dad just bought his son a car. Or uh, you, you started to go to college and you said, man, this is awesome. I'm rich. I'm going to college. Even though I got to pay all these loans, this is amazing. And you looked over and you said, oh, that kid's dad paid for his whole college. He'll have no loans. I'm not rich. And then you got out of college and you thought to yourself, well, hey, I'm out of college and I got minimal loans, but the good news is I'm rich. I got a job. I got a job at a great company. It's an amazing job. I love this company. Only to look over at the guy next to you and say, wow, that kid's dad bought him the company. (laughs) And I've never heard adults ever ask that question, are you rich? (laughs) Are you rich? That's so inappropriate of a question, isn't it? It's something only a kid would ask. And I've also likewise never, ever heard an adult say, I'm rich. All of us want to be rich. I won't make you raise your hands. You know it's true. All of us have this theoretical category in our minds of what riches are. All of us have grown in our day and age and our sophistication. The older we get, the more subtle our nuances are about our riches and our wealth. 
We don't like to talk about our riches. We just like to show off our riches. We don't put the new bends in the garage for a night so that our neighbors can admire it. We uh, make sure that the new improvements to the home are properly uh, displayed on Facebook. Uh, we, we, we are a people of conspicuously inconspicuous wealth, if that's even a possibility. We don't like to brag about our riches, but we're all of us trying to be rich. And how do you know if you're rich? How do I know if I'm rich? Aren't riches a subjective thing? And if nobody knows what rich actually is, then why are we all still chasing it? And when will we know when we get it? We all have these questions to some degree. That's because we all want to be rich. And everybody tune in very closely. Listen to me. This is incredibly true what I'm going to say. God wants you to be rich too. There. I said it. Now, how many of you just... um, didn't expect me to say that. Just raise your hands. How many of you are packing up your belongings because you think I'm a prosperity preacher? <laughs> Just hang in. Hang in for the next 30 minutes with me. Because at the end of our time together, I want, I want to convince us all from God's word that there's a type of riches that God wants to be true of his children. The key, the million-dollar question, so to speak, is how does God want me to be rich? It's a great question. There's a great answer for it found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Flip open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where I'm going to be today. 1 Timothy, in case your Bible's stuck in Romans, it doesn't go past Romans or something, uh, you just keep flipping and you'll find 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. But um, Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, a plain plan for how God wants us to be rich. And so as you're flipping in your Bibles, we're going to see a lot of scripture today. So I really want you to have a copy of it open. Don't just rely on the screens. I want you to see some of the things I'm not even talking about are really helpful in this text. But we're going to start here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, as for the, say this word with me, rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of, say it with me, riches, but on God, who, one more time, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Maybe you were flipping, you didn't catch that, let me read it again. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. How many know that God is not against riches? As long as we don't confine riches to just being a money thing. First thing we gotta see here is that we ought not think about riches as an amount of money, but as an attitude of our minds. It's not an amount of money, but it's an attitude of our minds. For God, riches, they're not an amount, it's an attitude I think the first step towards recognizing our riches is to recognize that God doesn't care about the amount of money or the resources that we have. God cares about our attitude towards our riches. When I was growing up, the message that I heard in church was, was actually quite different. The message that I received from our church was that God hates wealth, and people who have money should act like they hate it too. And people who don't have money should be glad that they're spared from that curse. And um, perhaps there's some level of conventional wisdom in that thinking, and um, that's fine, but that's really not a biblical thought. 
In fact, at many levels, that type of pious poverty is actually against what Paul tells Timothy right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because it's not about the amount. It's about the attitude. And why is that true? It's because the amounts change and financial wealth is unpredictable. Paul here calls it the, look at it, the uncertainty of riches. How many people know that wealth and riches are uncertain? Yeah. Uh, you ever... Uh, have something and then have it not? You ever have a house that you're really excited about that you bought in 2007? And in 2008, it felt like the Titanic, didn't it? Or uh, so many of us know what it's like to think that an inheritance is coming our way only to have the last will and testament read and surely they had more than that. And yet they don't. The uncertainty of riches. Riches are absolutely uncertain. Every tech giant, Jeff Bezos and that dude from Facebook that we all don't like, and that other guy that gives all his money, Bill, Bill, Bill Gates, I think is his name, uh, same thing in common, all came from nothing. And today have something. It changes. What you have today is different than what you'll have tomorrow. Some people, it's going to go up. Some people, it's going to go down. It's uncertain. And just because it's up doesn't mean it's always going to stay up. Since there's no good football games on today, you're free from watching TV. Um, and so you have space on your, you know, your Netflix to watch uh, this documentary by ESPN called uh, their 30 for 30 series. There's one called Broke. In it, uh, they chronicle different athletes who were millionaires, mega millionaires in the you know, 1990s. Guys that got real big contracts, and they chronicle just 15 years later what's happened to their wealth, and many of them are living paycheck to paycheck, just like you and me. Why? Because what Paul says here is true, that we ought not be haughty nor set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, because riches can be here today and gone tomorrow. So don't hope in the uncertainty of riches, but look at what Paul tells Timothy in those next three words. He says, Hope, not on riches, but on God, but on God. And that's the attitude that we ought to have, the attitude that I hope in the certain God because he has richly provided for us everything to enjoy and he is still richly providing for us today. I think one of the reasons 1 Timothy 6 jumped out of my mind for this weekend right here, right now for HP is because we are in the midst of a season where our mind is coming to the end of the year and our attention is drawing towards Christmas and Thanksgiving. And if you're really honest, you love those holidays, but you love Black Friday more. And more than Black Friday, you love Cyber Monday because you can do that in your pajamas. So much of the end of the year is an evaluative process. How did we do this year with the budgets? How much money do we have? What are our goals for next year? What are we hoping that we achieve next year? Will I get a raise? Why won't I get a raise? All of these questions come to the surface in the month of December for us, and we're evaluating how did we live our current year, and how are we hoping to live the next year? And my hope today is that we would simply not put our hope in the uncertainty of riches but that we would remember this, that when God is your riches, your riches are certain. When God is your riches, 
Your riches are certain. I'm just going to argue that the rest of my time here today is that when God is your riches, your riches are certain. Why is that true? Well, because God is the one who rightly provides us with everything to enjoy. If that verse, it doesn't imply that if we have a monetary amount that God gives us, but rather that what we need is from God, and it comes to us from a God who richly provides. So I'm not here today. My game's not to make you feel guilty about whatever you bought on Friday. My game is to simply tell you that if you have God, my friends, you have enough because he's able to give us whatever it is that we need. God is our riches. Our riches are certain. If you put that, that verse, previous verse 17 back up, I think we see that so clearly. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I want to show you this back at the beginning of Paul's logical thought, verse uh, 6. You can flip up in your app or in your Bible back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. To get the full picture of God as our riches, I want to take it from here. His thought, it begins, he says this, that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. I grew up in the 90s. The 90s was an awesome time of bumper stickers. Today's bumper stickers are all too much about your family. Back in the 90s, they were like eccentric and about you. And the bumper sticker that I loved the most in the 90s was one that my mom used to always jab my dad with, as if, you know, he was spending too much money on his toys. The bumper sticker simply said this. It said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And that's uh, been great bumper sticker theory for a long time. For some of us, that's how we actually live our lives. That if we can accumulate and stockpile as much as we possibly can, it will in some sense provide us this contentment that seems to be so elusive. But to this, Paul says, no, no, no. You brought nothing into the world. You're bringing nothing out of this world. It's not... Get as much as you can, which is gain. Rather, look at his formula. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. I would just call that riches. With these things, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. 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 I say the word content and you shriek. You shrivel. Content. Because you hear it through your Western ears, just like I do, and you hear the word be content as if there's nobody else that'll go out with you. Be content with the person who's having dinner with you. Settle for what's in front of you. Content. Be content. Beggars can't be choosers, bro. Be content. And for us, contentment is not a virtue. Contentment is something to flee from. We always want bigger, better, faster, stronger. Every consumer purchase that you've made has been a purchase of discontentment. How do I know that? Because you never bought the same car twice. Some of you have. Because it was a 1969 Chevelle. And you're like, it's still the greatest car ever. But there's a reason you go from the 2006 to the 2012. There's a reason that you don't go from the iPhone 10 to the iPhone 8. It's because wired into our products and our consumption is this discontentment that we ought not settle for what is second best. 
And to think about contentment in this frame of mind is actually to put a negative spin on what the Bible calls positive. Contentment is not at all settling. That's just our own warped consumeristic view of this world. It's so much better than that. To be content with something actually is a mashup of two, two types of words. There's a Latin word and a Greek word. The Latin is the word contained. To be contained. To, to be contained. This is a container. It's a glass. All of us know what this is. This is a container, right? This is something that holds something, right? It is, it is a container that you can hold. And you have the contents of the container are what is being content. Yeah. There's your Latin for the day. The Greeks, when Paul was writing this, he was writing this to a mostly Hellenistic society. He used this word content because the Greeks took that word of, you know, content being contained, being held, and they understood that that was to be divinely held, to recognize that all that you have in this life, the contents of your life are being given to you as a gift from the God who holds your cup or your life in his hands. To be content is actually a very safe place in the arms and the hands of God. Here's, here's what the thinking goes, is that um, God, who is uh, far more uh, you know, able to do abundantly more than we can even hold, uh, he, he has blessings in this life for us, his situations and, 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 and experiences and relationships for us. And, and the content person recognizes that their life is being held in God's hands, that they are contained. And so God, the content person, can fill them up. And godliness with contentment is a full cup. You win a full cup right there, a full cup. You have great gain. Anyone thirsty? I don't know where this came from, so don't, don't do that. The problem with this is that you're looking at this cup going, Pastor, it's a nice illustration and everything. I see the water went into the cup. That's cool. That's like an 18-ounce jar. I've got a 44-ounce life. I wish you would have gone big gulp from 7-Eleven. Couldn't you stop at Speedway and give me one of those giant mugs that's like as big as my head? That's the type of life that I want. I don't want this little puny life. There's more in the jar where it came from. How do I get more of this into here, pastor? Give me the big cup. I want the big cup. Actually, what would be better, pastor, is if it didn't have walls. I want a life without walls. I want a life of freedom. I don't want you to tell me how much I can get, pastor. What I want for my life is to be able to accumulate as much and as much and as much as I want because then I'll be happy. And so what we do is we sacrifice the container that God has prepared for us and we go running around chasing it all, looking for, looking for ways to gather up. And it's like we're, we're just putting God's blessings in our own hands and at the end of the day, what do we have left? Drippy hands. This is a picture of discontentment, the life that is not contained by God. His blessings are flowing. You're running all around trying to pick them up, trying to get as much as you can, but not recognizing that godliness with contentment is great gain. And so we look at God and we say, no, 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 I'm an American. Every year it's supposed to be more and better. 
Every year it's supposed to be bigger, faster, stronger. God, I don't want your container. I want more. And Paul says the attitude that focuses on the amount misses the attitude that focuses on the giver. Because when you are content, you realize that God is the one who holds you in his hands. You ought not try to hold your life in your own. When you try and hold your life in your own hands, even that which you have slips away between your fingers. The safest place on earth, my friends, is to be content in God. Do you see it? This is riches. We chase these other things hoping that they're going to satisfy because we think there's more abundance there. And true abundance comes when we recognize that all we need from life to death, notice this verse, what Paul says. He says, we brought nothing into this world, which is crazy. Because if you have a house and a car or two cars and some jet skis or a boat or a Whatever you have, you have clothes, racks of clothes, closets full of clothes, so many closets, you had to use other bedrooms in your house to house your clothes, clothes. If you have that, you never started with that. You didn't create that. You brought nothing into this world. And even worse, all that you accumulate in this life is not going to come with you to the next life at all. Job is the one who said, naked I came in this world and naked I will leave. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 12. He said that be on guard against, uh, how did he say it? I want to say it this way. I want to make sure I get it right. He said, be on guard about all types of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So we ought to realize that contentment is our greatest satisfaction, that I'm joyfully accepting the fact that my life is in God's hands for no matter what, uh, what comes my way, I know that God has me. Notice this, you brought nothing into this world, you take nothing out of this world. We can go back to that uh, verse in uh, verse six. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I'm curious, how many people today have food and clothing? Just curious, be honest, all of us. And if you don't, we just took up a benevolent fund and we'll help you. No joke, that's a thing. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content, why? Because life is not about what you consume or you control, it's about how you see God's gifts to you. We call this type of contentment then, the word is gratitude. That when I recognize that all that I need in life is to be held by God and he will pour me up, I can truly be grateful because I know that I am rich in God. That's what gratitude says. It's such an appropriate thing that we did this past Thanksgiving on Thursday for us to sit around a table and to feast with our family or our friends or whoever we were with because in sense, we're saying to God, we recognize all that we have has come from you and so we enjoy it here freely together, God. We are not rich because we have a turkey. We're rich because we have you. We're rich in God. Gratitude says I may be materially poorer than I'd like to be, but no matter, I'm satisfied knowing God contains my life and he holds me up. And if all he gives me is food for clothing, I will be glad because I'm rich in God. And if gratitude also says 
I may be materially wealthier than I ever imagined, but no matter. Because I'm satisfied knowing that God contains my life and he holds me up. And if all he ever gives me is food and clothing, I will be glad because my riches are in God, not in me. And friends, don't you see it? Gratitude, being thankful to God, understanding that our contentment produces in us great gain when we recognize the gift comes from God. When we are grateful to God for what he's given us, we grow. One of the reasons I think go trips are effective for Americans is because we believe the lie that wealth is happiness. And then we send you to a, um, what we call a third world country, which is a derogatory term derived by economics. They don't have as much development as we do. So we need to go help them. And Americans go, raise all this money, and they go, and they get there. And they're encountered a culture and a civilization with people who are not accustomed to all the accoutrements of life that you are. And you see something you don't normally see because our society has squashed it. You see joy. You see contentment. And you see gratitude. And then you say crazy things like, I went to give, but I ended up receiving. Because in our society, it is not more blessed to give than receive. In our society, it's more blessed to accumulate and to purchase your own happiness. And so it takes us having these cult- cross-cultural experiences for us to realize that even if I had just the basics of food and clothing, that would be enough because true joy is not contained by what I own. My true joy My gratitude is found that I am rich in God. God is enough. Even if he gives me just the basic necessities, he will give me all that I need, and I'll be okay. Gratitude, it takes our possessions and our energy and our resources, and it focuses them all upwardly towards God, saying, it came from you, God, so I say thank you to you. You are containing my life. You are blessing my life. Thank you, God. I think we grow in gratitude every single time we are blessed and we choose to acknowledge God as the giver of that gift. Recently heard a, um, a story of a family in our church who dad got a raise at the job that he works, and that's a great thing. And he went home and he told his family, he took them out to dinner, and the, the, the purpose of the dinner was to say, listen, God has provided for all that we need. And I love that because it wasn't Ebenezer Scrooge, his boss, who gave him all that he needed. It was God. A grateful heart always recognizes that all that I have is from God. And so I wonder, um, did you get a raise? Congrats. You didn't earn that. God gave it to you. Did you receive a gift to celebrate God? Or, like my family had to recently, did you have to choke down a large bill and were you really angry about it? only to realize that God had provided for you to pay the bill. Can you be grateful in God that he always gives you what you need? It's not about what we have. It's about how we perceive the things that we have. And so gratitude takes the source and it turns it back from us to God. Gratitude is a starting place in our riches because gratitude is a spiritual superpower. It's a spiritual superpower. I said that right. It's a spiritual superpower. 
You always wanted a superpower. Let me give you one. Gratitude. It's a superpower. Theologically, it's not a superpower. That's a terrible uh, category for any type of a, a term, but it's a, I want to call it a superpower, and here's why. Two reasons. Um, the first is that I was at Thanksgiving dinner this past week with uh, one of my family members. They're a medical person, and they're always asking about the church, asking about how you guys are doing. It's great for me to brag about y'all and talk about what God's up to here. But they always want to give me sermon advice. My family all has these favorite preachers, and they listen to them, and they go, oh, you're speaking on gratitude. Let me give you a link to that. And I'm like, no, 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 bro. We preach our own stuff, all right? Come on. One of my in-laws said, gratitude, that's really fascinating. Uh, He said, you know, I just read an article this week in a medical journal that said gratitude, expressing thanks, has the same effect on the mind as a dose of Welbuterin, which is an antidepressant drug. Simply expressing gratitude to God hits your soul in the same way that a pill will help you out. Isn't it great to know you don't have to take a pill to grow in gratitude, to see the effects of what God? So it's a superpower, but that's not really what I wanted to do. I just told him like, that was the best comment at the Thanksgiving dinner. You get to be repeated at the church. The reason I call it a superpower is honestly because I've been watching a lot of Marvel movies lately. I haven't seen any of them, and now I'm watching them all. And I just watched Captain America for the first time. Have you guys seen Captain America? Y'all are looking at me like I'm late to the game. Okay. I confess my sin, and I repent of it. Thank you. Said the one guy, probably with a Captain America figurine in the back. That's fine. Uh, And so uh, here's what I've been noticing, is that there's these stones in these movies. Do you know what I'm talking about? These infinity stones? There's six of them. To be specific, no spoilers, y'all. I just watched two movies, all right? Good night. You know what? Forget the illustration. I don't want, to, I don't want anyone ruining. You know, next you're going to tell me that Thor kills everybody or, or uh, Thanos wins in the end. Goodness. Here's what I noticed about the, the Tesseract, all right? You want me to flaunt mine? Now is the Tesseract, which is the first one in... Captain America. The Tesseract is this, uh, I love that it's in, it's in uh, Odin's hands because he's Norwegian and I'm Norwegian. I feel like that makes me a god, but that's okay. Uh, and so he's, the, the, the Tesseract is this inv- infinity stone which has power and it's used to fight with, but it's also used as a fuel source. And when I watched Captain America, you all were watching the special effects and everything. I was saying, thank you, Jesus. That's my illustration for this message on Sunday. Because here's what gratitude is. Gratitude, my friends, is the greatest fuel source and the greatest weapon that we have to fight with in the Christian life. The heart that is grateful for who God is and the heart that is grateful to know that God has given them all that they need is a heart that is empowered with all the energy and resources that we need in this life to fight and to be fueled by. And here's what I mean, and you're like, Dan, make that, make that argument. I'm gonna let Paul make that argument for me. Here's why gratitude is a superpower. Here's why gratitude is a great, is the seventh stone, okay? Here we go. Look at what Paul says in verse nine. He says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. That's really important because how many of us here think that gratitude is a rich person's game? That maybe if I had more, God, then I'd have more to be grateful for. But he says, no, no, no. Oftentimes it's those who are just hoping to be rich 
who will fall into temptation, into a snare, that's a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires and plunge people into ruin and destruction. You've heard this verse before, maybe misquoted, but here it is. For the love of money, the attitude, remember the attitude's important. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I told you that gratitude is a superpower that helps us fight. What is it that gratitude helps us fight? It's it's this. It's that gratitude fights greed. Gratitude, it fights greed. Gratitude says I'm rich in God, that I have all that I have because of God, but greed says that I'm rich in what I own and that all that I have is all that I possess. It's all for me. Paul says you can be broke and you can be greedy just like you can be wealthy and you can be greedy. Greed is an attitude that chokes out gratitude. A greedy person is motivated by material things and financial gain. And greed is never looked upon in the Bible as a positive attribute. It's the worst form of ambition. It's what you get when you focus all of your energy, all of your resources, all of your relationships, all of your experiences inward towards yourself, and and you don't lift them upward towards God. When all that you have terminates on you, you are greedy. Greed is the worst form of fear. It's fear of lack, fear of the future, fear of missing out on experiences, fear of being insignificant, fear that your life won't matter, fear ultimately that God won't be faithful to you. Greed is all about me. Gratitude says I'm rich in God, but greed says I'm rich in my goods. All that I have is what makes me wealthy. We might not think that we're greedy because we aren't wealthy, but we have a very, very simple test to figure out how greedy we actually are. You just go open your bank app on your phone and see how many dollars have you spent on someone who you are not responsible for. For some of us, we need to repent to God for living in fear and discontentment. And what I mean is that we've been so afraid of mismanaging our money or whatever our future might hold that we've tried to contain our lives ourselves. We've taken our lives and put them inwardly on our own hands instead of in God's hands. We focus more inwardly our resources, not upwardly, definitely not outwardly. And if we consume all of our resources, by definition, you are greedy. If you don't like being called greedy, you'll do what I'm prone to do, which is play a semantics game in my own mind. That I'm not greedy, I just have responsibilities. I'm not greedy. I'm giving my kids a better life than I had. I'm not greedy. I'm providing jobs for a lot of people at my company. I'm not greedy. I'm just trying to make my house look nicer so the community looks nicer. But at the end of the day, greed is all about me, about what you'll say about me when I'm gone, about what you'll say about me in the neighborhood, about what you'll say about me as the business owner or even as the church pastor. Sure, you can give your kids a better life than you had and not be greedy. Sure, you can make the neighborhood look nicer and not be greedy. Sure, you can employ thousands of people and give them great jobs and not be greedy. But listen, you'll never, 
ever do it God's way until you acknowledge and surrender your greed in the first place. Luke 12 says it again. I want to highlight the last part of this. Life does not consist in the abundance of its possessions. And why is it that gratitude is the weapon that we fight with against greed? Because Jesus says, take care, be on your guard. And gratitude gets us on guard to fight. Gratitude fights greed because it relocates the source of our riches back to where it belongs, which is God. Jesus is essentially saying that riches are good when your riches aren't goods. You catch me? Riches are good when your riches aren't goods. If you think that your life is contained by all that you have, you are severely missing out. So don't let your heart be tied up in stuff or getting more. Instead, we ought to let our hearts see and celebrate those good gifts and those goods as the gift from God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. And when we do that, we celebrate in gratitude, not greed. My heart is so pulled, if I can just be completely transparent with you, my heart is so pulled towards greed. Just, I think, as an American, as as a dad, as someone who's trying to provide for his family, I'm so torn and pulled towards the things of this world. And I wonder if you're like me. I wonder if your greed expresses itself in this very subtle but sinister way that when you don't need anything, you find yourself shopping on Amazon. When you have an unbelievable house, but you still check Zillow to see if something better's out there. When you just bought a car, but cars.com is always on your phone because you never know if a better deal's there. I mean, I could go on in all the ways that we experience greed in this life that seems so innocuous, so under the cover, so, so simple, but all it is is greed. It's a, it's a saying of myself, I'll be happier if I get this. And it's a refusal to say, God, I'm happiest when I'm like this. Accepting from you the gifts that I have. And so gratitude. The ability to say, thank you, God, for the things that I have has been the only way I've learned how to turn the phone off. In those moments where I'm scrolling and saying, oh, yeah, you're right, I do need a printer because I only have five of those. I go, no, why do I, I don't need tomorrow's junk. I don't need tomorrow's garage sale. I don't need another car that's going to rust and decay. God, thank you that you've given me all that I need. And gratitude fights Greed. But I said that gratitude is a superpower that we fight with. It's also an energy source that we're fueled by. And here's where I want to land this for us today. As we find this a few verses down in verse 17, back where we started, I want you to see this one more time. As for the rich in this present age, are you guys with me today or am I just preaching myself? Yeah, yeah. As for the rich in this present age, which is none of us, I know, you're not rich. For the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice this. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When God is your riches, your riches are certain. And we thank God in gratitude that we are rich in God, And gratitude fights greed, which says we're rich in goods. 
But here's what gratitude does in this verse. When we see that everything comes from God on the first basis, that he is our riches, gratitude, it fuels our generosity. And generosity says that I can be rich in good works and I can look outwardly, not inwardly. Gratitude looks up and says, thank you, God, for all that I have. Greed looks in and says, I want more. But generosity looks out and says, whatever God's given me, he's given me to give to you. And that is the ultimate ethic of the Christian, to say that what I have is not my own. I have it to be a blessing. We've been saying around here at Bethel for the past couple of weeks that we're blessed. Why? Not to be greedy, but to give. Sounds a lot like what Jesus says, doesn't he? Notice what Paul says here. I just want to break this down. Paul says, they are to do good. And there's some things in the Bible that seem so elementary, so simple. Like my four-year-old could understand this. Do good. Automatically, he knows what good is. But good, doing good, and when Paul wrote that, was actually a code to the Greco-Roman world. In this day, to do good was a, a way to sort of wave the bat signal of Christianity, to invest in the community without ever expecting a repayment in return. It's a term called benefaction to do good, to bless others around you. The Christians of this day were being criticized by uh, the Romans and the the Greeks to to say, well, you're just in your own little cult that's robbing us from improving the world around us. And Paul says, no, no, if you have money and you follow Jesus, your job is not to withdraw from the community, but actually put your money into the community so that the name of Jesus Christ can be worshiped. We have these um, types of things today, people who do good, people who are rich in good works. Uh, This past Monday, my family uh, took the trip, the last nice day of the year, down to downtown Chicago to Maggie Daly Park, which is, I don't know, the eighth wonder of the world for kids, I think. And if you've never been down there, it's just this gorgeous assortment of different slides and playgrounds and things. There's a, whatever, it's Chicago, so just go. And um, on the walls, next to many of these things are benefactors, the names of people who have, in Paul's words, done good. They are sometimes companies, sometimes politicians, sometimes just very wealthy, philanthropic people in our community. They are benefactors. They're people who have done good. They're not owners. They don't own the park. That wasn't the agreement for them to say, oh, I own a piece of Maggie Daly Park. No, they're benefactors, which means they gave money out of the goodness of their heart to bless others. So when my family walked into the park, we didn't pay nobody. I hope I'm not doing it wrong. You don't, right? You don't pay anybody at the park? You didn't steal? And when we left, we left the experience behind and we had no bill to pay. They simply gave with no expectation of repayment. That's what it means when Paul says they are to do good. They're to take what they have and bless the community around them for the name of Jesus. They're to be rich in good works. That's the word benevolent. They are to be more than well-wishers. They are to be well-doers. Why do we call it a benevolent offering the first Sunday of the month when we pass that plate two times? You thought it was just a weird church thing. No, no, it just literally means doing good. We pass that plate the second time, first Sunday of the month, because we want to do good and be generous people. I knew when I got to this point, y'all get really silent. 
Because there's some inherent connection in our mind between generosity and guilt. We always feel like we can be doing more. But there's also, in my mind, this moment here in this church where I absolutely feel like I'm preaching to the choir. Generosity has been uh, one of the hallmarks of this campus ever since day one. This is a campus that, when there was a flood, uh, moved all of the stuff from the building so that we could preserve what we have and build it up later. This is a campus that, when we found out that we could go get a $100,000 wood floor if only we could have people who donate their time, sent 80 people over to the field house in uh, Crown Point to rip up plank by plank a a beautiful maple floor and bring it all the way over here. This is a campus that whenever we've needed to build something, we haven't hired out outsiders. People have just shown up with their tools and their experience and their expertise. This is a a campus where when people have babies, those, those moms and dads are... It's like Thanksgiving on steroids for some of these people because the amount of food that shows up in their refrigerators and in their freezers from all of you as as I see the body just going to work, it's like this beehive of generosity around here, and it's amazing. And I I don't have this aim today to tell you to be more generous. I just simply have this aim today to say be more grateful because when we're grateful, We fight the greed inside of us that makes us want to take control of our own life. And when we're grateful, we're fueled to do more generous activities because we see that God has given us all we need and we can give that away. I don't know about you. I don't want to have a discontented life, spilling my blessing everywhere. But if all we get is food and clothing with that, we will be content with that. We'll be grateful with that. We'll fight greed with that. We'll fuel generosity with that. We'll glorify God.